You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Transnet declares force majeure over cyber attack on South African port management. The IRGC apparently is Googling a bunch of stuff about gas stations and merchant ships. Kaseya's denial of paying ransom has legs. Criminal coders like obscure languages. The Avos Locker Gang is looking for pen testers, access brokers, and affiliates. The U.S. and China hold frank and open conversations about cyber tensions. Ben Yellen explains the tech implications of President Biden's recent executive order. Our guest is Eve Mailer from Forge Rock on their third annual breach report. And hey, NSA, what did you have for lunch today? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. MoneyWeb reports that South Africa's Transnet has declared force majeure and thus claimed relief from liability in a letter to its customers acknowledging that what was initially described as disruption on an IT network amounted to an act of cyber attack, security intrusion, and sabotage. The letter explains, quote, Investigators are currently determining the exact source of the cause of compromise and extent of the ICT data security breach sabotage. Transnet is implementing all available and reasonable mitigation measures to limit the impact of this compromise, end quote. Declaration of force majeure is unusual and indicates a major interference with Transnet's ability to deliver services. According to Bloomberg, operations at South Africa's six major container ports have been disrupted, and Transnet's recovery remains a work in progress. Sky News has obtained and published documents it believes represent planning by the Shahid Kaveh unit of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps for cyber attacks against ships and oil facilities. The documents also indicate an interest in satellite communication systems, especially as they are used in maritime operations and in building control systems. Western firms, particularly companies in the UK, the US, and France, figure among the intelligence targets. What Sky News describes as a security source with knowledge of the 57-page bundle of five research reports anonymously told the news outlet that they, that is the IRGC, are creating a target bank to be used whenever they see fit. The Shahid Kaveh documents included observations on shipboard ballast systems and the pumps that control them. There were also discussions of retail-level vulnerabilities in automatic fuel gauges and tank management systems at filling stations. Disruptions to those systems, the documents said, could result in disruption of the fuel supply and explosion of fuel station tanks through access to the control equipment. The observations on satellite communications concentrated on two systems— the Seagull 5000i, which provides phone, fax, and other data services via a satellite link, and the Sealink CIR. As Sky News notes, 
The documents don't contain any particularly sophisticated insights or evidence of deep research into the systems the authors discuss. Indeed, much of the material seems to be the result of Google dorking, simply pulling research results and compiling them into a report. So, alarmism about imminent Iranian cyber attacks on ships and filling stations would be premature at best, and not a sign that Iran has developed and deployed significant capability to exploit control system vulnerabilities. That Iran, like most other countries, is interested in cyber attack capabilities is well known. So, the Sky News documents are interesting, but don't really present cause for alarm. In fairness... We would be remiss if we didn't point out that some interest in vulnerabilities at this level is equally consistent with defensive as offensive planning, but potential targets would be wise to look to their defenses. As we've seen, Kaseya yesterday responded to speculation that it had paid off the R-Evil gang to obtain a decryptor with a categorical denial that it had either paid ransom or negotiated with the extortionists. There's no word on reasons for the non-disclosure agreement Kaseya asked customers to sign and which prompted much of the speculation that the ransom had been paid. But, as experts interviewed by ZDNet note, there's nothing inherently nefarious about an NDA. BlackBerry reports a trend. Cybercriminals are using uncommon programming languages to help evade detection. This isn't entirely new either, as BlackBerry says, but the languages Go, D, Nim, and Rust currently seem to be in favor with criminal coders. Malwarebytes reports that the relatively young ransomware gang that operates Avos Locker is advertising on the dark web for both employees, especially access brokers and pen testers with experience in active directory networks, as well as affiliates. In their marketing emails to their victims, the Avos Locker runners lapse into the current cliches warning the affected organizations that their files have been locked with military-grade encryption. The U.S. and China yesterday concluded two days of high-level talks about a range of issues that include, from the U.S. side, human rights concerns, the security of Taiwan, and what the U.S. sees as Chinese misbehavior in cyberspace. A State Department communique described discussions as frank and open, which is customary foggy-bottom speak for salty and contentious. The U.S. was represented by Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, who traveled to China for discussions with State Counselor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi and other PRC officials. The U.S. said it welcomed competition and, while it didn't seek conflict with the People's Republic, wouldn't hesitate to defend and advance its own interests. And finally, how's your cafeteria treating you nowadays? Nice food? Stable prices? Good value? Apparently, the NSA cafeterias at Fort Meade are disappointing, serving less than toothsome food at prices that seem both high and unstable. Motherboard is covering this story, and it took them a Freedom of Information Act request to get the inside skinny on the diner's complaints. A lot of them are concerned with the eggs, sodas, and salads, which are not perceived as being necessarily a good value, and also about the disparity between the prices of chicken at two different locations. The FOIA researcher who got copies of the complaints 
and hats off to you, Ms. Emily Kroos, quotes one of the disgruntled NSA types as summing up, With all the problems going on with the redacted cafeteria, an increase in pricing should be the last thing they are worried about. Some of the dissatisfied customers seem more concerned about fluctuations in price, since the changes cited amount to between 6 and 12 cents. The objections seem more matters of an outraged sense of order than they do a financially-based complaint. Our government service desk speculates that this probably means linguists are heavily overrepresented in the complaint box, since this kind of thing seems more up their alley than it does, say, the alleys of computer engineers or intelligence analysts, but of course that's just speculation. It could also be U.S. Army personnel offering suggestions, since it's a long-standing tradition in the senior service to regard an invitation to complain about food as an occasion for joie du combat, which would place a much happier construction on the whole incident. One experienced and anonymous source told us, Those critters, meaning GIs, would plutonium and hydrazine if it gave them a chance to complain. Maybe that's just the way things are at the redacted cafeteria, which is what we now intend to call any restaurant we might open in the future. But are things bad in the other four eyes? Maybe. An anonymous source close to the intelligence community told Motherboard, Maybe not the worst cafeteria I've ever eaten in, but worse than the time I ate at a U.S.-run military base mess hall, Anonymous Source said, adding, For comparison, the equivalent cafeteria in Australia was much better, but not exciting, and the Canadian one was somehow worse, though that might just be because I ate there so many more times. Quote, If you're eating at one of these facilities from Sheltonham to Canberra, feel free to vent to us in an email. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The team at identity and access management platform provider ForgeRock recently released their 2021 Consumer Identity Breach Report, tracking the trending targets and financial impact of breaches over the last year. Eve Mailer is Chief Technology Officer at ForgeRock. Attacks using usernames and passwords increased 450% in 2020. So that was the cause of 1.48 billion breached records. So that's one thing, not good thing. Wow. What else? Um, So for the third consecutive year, unauthorized access, so partly caused by usernames and passwords being used, was the most common type of breach, and that accounted for 43% of breaches. Another thing was that healthcare, again, was the most common targeted sector. So that accounted for about a third of all breaches, 34% of those breaches. And it also, uh, again, had the highest average cost to enterprises per compromised record at $474 per record. When you look at the, the overall uh, financial impact here, what, what, uh, what stands out to you? I mean, who, who got hit the worst? Well, unfortunately, it was the tech sector, something we know a lot about. Um, the tech sector in aggregate paid the highest cost of recovery uh, at $288 billion dollars. Uh, and they had uh, uh, 1.6 billion records stolen in total. That's the technology sector there. So what are the overall recommendations then for for organizations and folks out there to better protect themselves? What are you suggesting? Well, the biggest thing that organizations and people can do really is, if you can, stop using passwords (laughs) to protect accounts. And that's really kind of a zero-trust approach that people have been hearing about. And I I suspect that everybody has really been hearing about this more and more, particularly with the recent White House cybersecurity executive order, uh, which puts such a big emphasis on zero trust architecture, uh, which is really just about trying to draw protection closest to all of your most sensitive resources to minimize the blast radius if something is really compromised And, you know, passwords are just really the least secure and least pleasant way to protect an account or a resource. Um, They're they're most deployable these days, and that's kind of unfortunate. But there's so many other ways to protect accounts uh, with uh, strong authentication, multi-factor authentication. uh, And these are ways that we can protect our most important things better, really. Was there anything that stood out to you as being particularly surprising in this year's report? Any anything that uh, that strayed from where you expected it to go? Um, I would have to say that maybe the cost of breaches for businesses, maybe the maybe the GDPR fines actually jumping so high. Hmm. Coming to think of it, because we saw that GDPR fines jumped forty percent. Uh, globally. And when you think about GDPR having been uh, under enforcement for a couple of years, that's really quite striking. So that's something that people really need to watch out for. When it comes to things like ransomware attacks, 
The most important thing we need to worry about is sometimes when the attacks are coming from inside the house, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and that's where uh, what we in the identity world call identity governance. So when you're looking for perhaps somebody who might have been an insider who maybe was fired, is no longer with a company, and you need to be sure that you haven't actually extended privileges longer than you should have. And uh, identity governance practices are something that really need to be taken care of in the case where somebody could have inserted uh, some kind of malware or ransomware or something like that uh, after the point when they really shouldn't have been around. Uh, so identity governance and administration, sometimes called IGA, is something extremely important uh, to be looking after. That's Eve Mailer from Forge Rock. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. A story here from The Verge. Uh, It's titled, Biden Signs Executive Order Targeting Right to Repair ISPs, Net Neutrality, and More. Uh, There's a lot in this recently signed executive order. Can you take us through uh, some of the things here that apply to uh, our audience? Sure. So this is a very broad executive order signed on July 9th. The general goal is to promote competition um, and it mostly has to do with technology, which is why we're talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> right, right. Um, one thing we've talked about before are these so-called right-to-repair regulations. Yeah. Originally, the effort was going to be geared toward farming equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, you had this issue where people would buy John Deere tractors in order to get the uh, doohickeys and gadgets needed to fix the products when they were deficient. You had to go to the manufacturer. Right. Uh, you couldn't, uh, you know, buy it on the market and do it yourself. Because tractors are now software. Right. <laughs> Which they are. Yeah, right, they are. Right. right, uh, right. <laughs> so what this executive order does is uh, starts an effort to be spearheaded by the Federal Trade Commission to limit powerful equipment manufacturers from restricting people's ability to use independent repair shops or DIY repairs. Mm. And uh, this is going to cover all electronics, so it is no longer just uh, farming equipment. I'm surprised that this effort hasn't happened sooner. I mean, it's it's something that you'd think would be uh, supported on all sides of the political spectrum because it does foster competition. Right, um, right. You know, independent shops can come in and say, we can fix all different types of devices. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we shouldn't confine the market just to the manufacture of the device. 
As it relates to big tech, there are some anti-monopolization aspects to this executive order. Uh, There is now a mandate to require, and I quote, greater scrutiny of mergers, especially by dominant internet platforms. Hmm. Um, with particular, <laughs> who could they mean there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we won't name names, <laughs> right, but uh, right. I think the you usual can figure suspects. it out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so they're talking about the acquisition of uh, what they call nascent competitors, serial mergers. You know, I, I think we know exactly what they're referring to here. It's mm-hmm. cases that we've talked about on this podcast and on the Caveat podcast. Right. So, you know, I think that's part of a broader effort to try and cut down on consolidation in the industry, which is really hurting consumers. Mm. Um, and they're also, as part of this executive order, uh, under the purview of the FTC, going to place more rules on surveillance and data collection. And, you know, that's something that's going to have downstream impacts on technology companies uh, around the world. There's even a a provision on patent policy reform that they talk about uh, in this article. So it's kind of an omnibus executive order uh, designed to spur competition and, um, you know, cut down on the consolidation of the tech industry. Yeah. Um, Some stuff here for the FCC as well, uh, going uh, for better broadband. Oh, yeah. So there's this provision that tasks the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, to require ISPs to uh, report prices and subscription rates and preventing ISPs from making deals with landlords that limit uh, tenants' options. I'm quoting from the article here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, this is the case in, in many locations where our listeners live, but I used to live in Baltimore City, uh, and there was a deal between Comcast— or should we say a company that goes unmentioned? <laughs> there was a deal between one cable company right. uh, and the city that uh, essentially made uh, Baltimore City inaccessible to all of the competitors of that one company. Huh. And it was really nice to move out to Baltimore County where that's not the case and you have more competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you <laughs> Instead can see, of a monopoly, you have a duopoly, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the very least, maybe a triopoly. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have very, in, in some parts of the country, there is only one internet service provider unless you want to um, go out and, and seek some of the less common alternatives. Yeah. Uh, it's something that's not both not good for competition and very detrimental to the consumer because that one company has very little incentive to provide good customer service. Uh, so, you know, I think this is a, a promising step that's been taken here. Can you put this in perspective? I mean, what what is the what is the degree to which this executive order has actual power to make things change? I think it really does. I mean, a lot of it is tasking federal agencies with coming up with rules and regulations. That's a cumbersome process. Hmm. Um, It sometimes takes a long time. There has to be, uh, you know, they have to draft a rule, come up with a notice of proposed rulemaking, go through the rulemaking process, Mm -hmm. solicit notice and comments. Um, So we might be talking about a relatively extended time period here, but I think the executive order has teeth. One, it states what the administration's policies are vis-a-vis these anti-competitive practices. It gives instructions, specific instructions to agencies to help accomplish these goals. And I'll also add, it doesn't seem that there's been much pushback on this executive order from either side of the political spectrum. Hmm. I think reflecting particularly a Republican Party that is more skeptical of consolidation in the tech industry, Mm. particularly as it relates to social media, Mm -hmm. um, because they feel, I think, quite reasonably that there isn't enough competition uh, in in that market. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we really haven't seen the type of pushback that you'd normally get to a large sweeping executive order from a a opposing political party. So I think, you know, what's in this executive order is going to have teeth and it's going to be sustainable. 
Yeah, I th- also I think of of interest to folks in the tech industry. He's calling on the FTC to ban uh, non compete clauses, which are very common in this industry. Very common in this industry. I mean, it's it's more egregious in other industries where, like, you know, fast food restaurants have non compete clauses, and you know hmm. that ruins people's job prospects, um, and, and has them wedded to one company even if they're being treated poorly. Right. It happens to a much larger degree in the tech industry, um, where it's it's much more difficult to switch jobs, even if you're unhappy somewhere, just because you've signed uh, one of these non-compete clauses. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners who, who work in this, uh, in this industry would be very appreciative if they're not being tied down uh, by, these, by these contracts. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Trey Hester, Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.